for the few minutes that I'm going to have up here this morning, I want to I offer you just some very basic encouragement. Encouragement to believe in and to find joy in the promise that Jesus is God come to us who will never leave us and who will always give us what we need. The words I want to speak to you this morning work as a kind of companion to the message that I gave last week. Last week's message was summing up the book of Judges, which has been our focus for the last few months together here at Trinity. Uh, we, uh, we were walking just story by story through that old book, through a very dark time in Israel's history, coming back over and over to one, the same thing, that, that in the Judges, in one of Israel's darkest times, what we're getting through each one of these colorful characters is as much important for what we don't see as for what we do see. That the judges in that book was giving us what, what I referred to last week as a, a kind of negative space picture of the king Israel needed if Israel to, was to have any peace. You know what a negative space picture is. It's a, it's a picture where, where the color, the splashes of color that catch your eye are really just outlining something that's not there. They're really just supposed to draw your attention to the shapes that, that aren't colored in, that aren't filled in. Uh, that, that, that's what Judges is doing, full of colorful characters, but these characters aren't themselves the point. They're trying to draw your attention to what's missing. So last week's message was summing up Judges as a picture of the king that we all need. This week's time together, I want to show us the king that God has given us. Speaking of negative space pictures, uh, my oldest son's birthday was last month, and he's really into Harry Potter right now, and he wanted a Harry Potter cake. And so my wife, I probably went on Pinterest or somewhere, printed off uh, a, a kind of negative space uh, outline of Harry Potter's head and his distinctive round glasses, right? Cuts that out of a colored piece of paper, and there you've got a negative space portrait, right? But then what she did next is lay that over the top of the cake and take a bunch of sprinkles, fill in the negative space, you pull the negative space picture out, and now you've got a picture of Harry Potter's face on a cake. Right? Brilliant. What I want to do this morning is take the negative space picture, what's not there from Judges that we looked at last week and really all fall, and we're going to pour the Gospel of John like a, like, a, like a canister of sprinkles. We're going to pour the Gospel of John's message about Jesus into that emptiness, lift it back, and see the picture of the king that God has given us. And what we're going to see is that he's given us exactly what we need. He's given us what we can't do without. And by his grace, we, we don't have to do without because of Jesus. I want to use just a few references in the Gospel of John to tie us back to the things Judges has shown us that we need. I want to begin by reading the opening four verses of John's Gospel. I'm going to read John 1 to 4. I'm going to ask you while I do that to please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's word. You can be seated. John uses this image of light shining in the darkness 
I think Judges is helpful for us to recognize what darkness was there. This dark backdrop against which the light of Jesus pops out in all of its brilliance. I want to point you to three things that Jesus came to give us. Three things that Judges has shown us that we need. And all three of them I'm going to pull out of a few references in John's Gospel. On your worship guide, you should see a, an outline. It gives you these three, these three things Jesus came to give us and the, the parts of John that I'm going to be pulling from. I'm not going to spend much time in each one of those texts, so I wanted you to have that so you can go back and read them on your own time if you'd like to. So the question is, given the, given the darkness that Judges has shown us, what sort of light would Jesus have to be? What sort of king do we really need to have what we need? I want you to think back, if you were with us for that series, to the end of the story. A time full of violence and chaos, where the weak were absolutely at the mercy of the strong. Where no one was around to hold anybody else accountable. The end of Judges repeats the same refrain. There was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. And without a king, everybody just does whatever was right in their own eyes. What was missing without a king was a standard for how we treat one another and someone strong enough to hold even the powerful up to that standard. What judges showed us is that without a king, there's no standard for how we behave. No one to check the power of the strong. What we said at that time is that when there's no standard of justice that we can depend on, when everybody just does whatever they want to do, we're not more free, even though it might seem that way. We're actually more vulnerable. What that would mean is that everyone has a right to do whatever they have the might to do. Without some standard for judgment, everyone can do whatever they can pull off, whatever no one else can stop them from doing. And in that setting, the weak will always be at the mercy of the strong. But when Jesus came, the first words out of his mouth were words about a kingdom that he said in his coming was here now. Early this year, we t- spent some time in Matthew's gospel. We're going to be a little bit in John's gospel today, but earlier this year, we spent some time in Matthew's gospel unpacking Jesus' sermon about his kingdom what he called the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom that he had come to bring. Matthew's Sermon on the Mount unpacks the ways that people are going to treat each other in this kingdom with Jesus as king to explain the standard, to uphold the standard, even against those who rejected it. Here's what life will be like. Here is a place where the people who are poor in spirit are are those who reign. This is a place where people are going to be merciful, be peacemakers, be meek, this is a place where, where no, one, no one takes whatever they can get. No one grabs whatever others aren't powerful enough to stop them from grabbing. This is a place of people who are pure in heart, not just doing whatever it is they feel like doing that day. But what we said then and what we really can see now after Judges is that for Jesus to make good on that gospel of that kingdom where people are are treating each other differently than they would if he weren't here, if he weren't establishing such a kingdom. What, What we really need is not just a good teacher to point us to a better way. One of the most common 
and tragic misconceptions about Jesus is that he was nothing more than a good teacher. As if his main point was just to to, to direct us towards love and harmony, to celebrate peace and to help us to find our way there. That sort of generic or sentimental goodwill is all over the place at Christmas time, isn't it? You often hear it in songs or on signs or captions on Christmas cards. It's definitely true that the world would be a lot better place if everybody followed Jesus' way of life, but the reality is not everybody follows Jesus' way of life. A lot of people reject his message. And if all he had to offer us were a message about a better way, then we are in no better position than Israel was in the time of the judges. What we really need, what Judges has shown us, is that we need a king who doesn't just point us to a better way, but who conquers all who are opposed to his better way. We need a king who can establish justice once and for all. There's nothing sentimental about Isaiah chapter 59. One of many places in the prophets that, that God promises things will not always be as they are. That he himself will one day come to make things right. There's nothing sentimental about verses 14 to 18 of Isaiah 59. Listen to this. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, and there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm, brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds so he will repay wrath to his adversaries repayment to his enemies to the coastlands he will render payment This is a promise of the sort of king God would bring. And a promise that he would become this king himself. Now I want you to listen to what Jesus says about his own ministry in John chapter 5. With judges as a background, the, the promise of the prophets as another layer, listen to what Jesus says about himself. This is Judges, or John rather, John 5 verse 19. Jesus said to them, actually, check that. Go to number, verse 22, and then look at verses 25 to 29. The Father judges no one, Jesus said, verse 22, but has given all judgment to the Son. What does that mean? Think about what we read in Isaiah, and listen to verse 25. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, an hour is coming, and is now here, When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says. 
For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the difference between every man doing what's right in his own eyes and getting away, for it, away with it and justice for the weak against the strong. Jesus is pointing to a day that he says is coming when everyone who has ever lived will stand before him and give an account for what they've done. He speaks of an actual day of an actual experience that I'm going to have, that you are going to have. The reason, friends, that this is such an important promise, given what we saw in Judges, is that in this life, as far as we can see, often the powerful are not held accountable for the way that they treat the weak. If you were one of those poor, unsuspecting people living in Laish in Judges chapter 18, when the Danites decide they want to find themselves a new homeland, and the Danites show up with, with, with weapons and armed men that you have no power to resist, and the Danites just decide they're taking your land, whether you like it or not, and you have nothing that you can do, when you're one of those people... You have no hope but a justice that's deferred, that's still to come. Sometimes the notion of a judgment that's coming can seem distasteful to us. It can can kind of seem primitive, seem kind of beneath the God that we want to believe in. But I think that only, it only seems primitive and ugly and otherworldly for those of us who are comfortable enough to not experience much injustice. Jesus promised that he is going to judge everyone who's ever lived, that all of them will get what they deserve. It's a promise that lands differently on people who have lived under the thumb of the powerful without any hope of seeing justice in this life. I mentioned the poor folks from Laish who were displaced by that roving band of Danites that we talked about a few weeks ago. I mean, the same would hold true for, imagine yourself as an, as an African slave here in our own city 200 years ago. You were born into slavery and the dehumanizing conditions that that, that, that that meant for all who were born that way. You would have lived and died in slavery. You would have never seen those who had put you there, held to account for their raw decision based on their own power to treat their lives as more important than yours. You would have lived your whole life and never seen them held to account. When I was in graduate school, one of, the, uh, one of my favorite writers that I came across was a, an African-American theologian named Howard Thurman, who was a professor up in Boston for a long time wrote a really influential article on the Negro spirituals that the slaves would sing to one another. So he came along at a time when people saw the kind of language in those spirituals, longing for glory land and longing for justice as a kind of escape from what's real, as a kind of cheap way to pretend like life isn't as hard as it seems to be. 
they would, they were, they were folks who were influenced by Karl Marx, who just saw that, as a re, saw that kind of language as, as holding these people back from actually protesting the conditions they were having to live under. And Howard Thurman said, no, 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 no. You, you have to be way too comfortable in life to read the spirituals that way. For the people who lived their lives, there was nothing otherworldly about longing for a king who would come to establish justice and a land of peace and harmony and joy that could be theirs. There was nothing otherworldly about that at all. That was the only way to live in this world. That's the only way to cope with the fact that you were not going to see those who were oppressing you brought to justice, that it just wasn't going to happen. Friends, one of the only reasons we resist the idea of a judgment in which all people no matter how powerful they were in this life, will give an account for the way they treated others. One of the only reasons we resist that is that most of us live lives that are too comfortable to have ever experienced that sort of injustice, the kind of injustice that would make you long for a a ruler to come who will say, no more. Jesus, according to John 5, is the king who will not allow anyone to do whatever seems right in their own eyes, who sees everything that happens and will one day judge everyone through his powerful, wise, good, and perfect justice. And on that day, we will know peace. Jesus came to establish justice. Judges has shown us that's exactly what we need. But Jesus came for more than justice. Jesus came to set us free. One of the things we learned in Israel's experience and hopefully have begun to see in our own is that even though Israel experienced oppression from all these neighbors that were more powerful than them who would would come in and take over their land for a time during the book of Judges, like the Midianites and the Moabites and the Philistines, even though they experienced oppression, they were always their own worst enemy. They were held back more by their own sin than by the power of those who came in to oppress them. That's why Judge's story really worked in a cycle. They kept going through the same things over and over again. God would send them a judge to deliver them from oppression, but then as soon as that judge died, they'd forget. They'd forget what happened, forget that God was worth trusting. They'd start looking around for other options that might be better, start worshiping and serving the gods of their neighbors, and they didn't write back up right back in, in, under the thumb of some neighbor that they thought would be better for them than God. Their own worst enemy, their true bondage, was to themselves, to their own sin and its effects in their lives. And no judge was able to set them free from that bondage. From that cycle, we've learned two things that show us what we need in a king if we're to have any hope for true freedom. First, we need a king who can set us free from sin's penalty. We need a king who can set us free from what we deserve for our sin. The problem for all of us isn't reducible to what someone else has done to us. And any promise that Jesus comes as a judge who sees everything that anyone has ever done and will hold them accountable for it is also a threat to me as an unjust person who puts my own interests ahead of the interests of others as if my life is more important than theirs. So what we need is someone who can free us from what our sins deserve. And no judge that Israel ever had through that whole story could do that 
because there was no judge that Israel ever had who wasn't a lot like Israel, who didn't ultimately share the same flaws that Israel had. (laughs) That's one of the things we mentioned over and over and over. These judges were used despite themselves. They weren't these amazing moral paragons that you put on a pedestal and tell your kids to be like. No, these guys had issues, major issues. They weren't going to save anyone from sin's penalty because they bore sin's penalty. They owned sin's penalty. But not Jesus. Now look at John chapter 5, verse 19. Think about the judges who, just like Israel, did what was right in their own eyes. And now listen to what Jesus says about himself. John 5, verse 19. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he, that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Do you notice what Jesus is saying? Jesus perfectly does everything that his Father says is right. Jesus does nothing that his father doesn't tell him to do. And because Jesus does everything that his father wants from him, because Jesus does nothing that displeases his father, therefore Jesus is able to give life to those who look to him. Same thing happens in John chapter, same thing comes up in John chapter six. Flip over a page or two. John chapter six, verse 35. Listen to what Jesus says here. Think about those judges who were no different than the people they were saving, just as sinful as they were. Listen to what Jesus says here. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Listen to this, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is my only purpose. This is what I'm doing with everything in my life. That I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. But raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my father. That everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What Jesus is saying, friends, is that because he perfectly obeys God, unlike any of the judges Israel ever lived under, he is able to save those who have not obeyed God. Because he doesn't share our flaws, he can redeem us from them. Because his life was perfect, he can give life to the imperfect. Because he was willing to die a death that he didn't deserve, those of us who don't deserve to live can have life forever. Judges showed us if we're to really have freedom, then we need freedom not just from what others are doing to us, but from our own sin and its effect in our life. And no judge could give that because they all had sin, but not Jesus. He came to do one thing only, and that is to perfectly fulfill his Father's will that through him, those who don't deserve it can have life. I mentioned earlier that judges has shown us two things that the judges couldn't give us that we desperately need from a king if we're to have any hope. One of them is that we need 
We need a king who can set us free from sin's penalty. The other one is that we need a king who can set us free from sin's power. We need to be set free from sin's penalty, yes, from the fact that, that we are guilty of the same things we want others to be held to account for. We need, we need freedom from sin's penalty. But more than that even, in addition to that, we need to be set free from sin's power. And the judges has shown us this. Because what we've seen in Judges is that Israel was only as obedient as long as they had uh, some sort of powerful judge to, to guide them to obedience. But as soon as that judge died, well, then everything comes unglued. These judges didn't have the power to change Israel on the inside. The best they could do was constrain them on the outside, was hold them back from doing what their natures were to do. They didn't have the power to change them, to transform them. The judges were like teachers in a room full of second graders. They're fine when you're in there, but you step out and everything falls apart. What the, judges, what the book of Judges showed us we need is someone who has the power to, to, to change us forever. Now, someone who won't just die and leave us in the same condition we were in when he found us. That was the problem of Judges. Now listen to what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 16 to 19. Think about those judges who came and were helpful and held Israel back for a while, but then would die and everything would fall apart again. Think about that as you listen to what Jesus says about himself here. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. You see what Jesus is saying? Unlike those judges who did their best, but always died. Unlike those judges whose ability to penetrate into Israel's darkness was skin deep at best. Jesus has made a way for his people to be with him forever. He's left for a time, but he's not left us alone. He has sent his own spirit not to hold us back, but to be in us, transforming us so that we are not what we were. And we, we will be different yet even from what we are now. And not because Jesus has just wiped the slate clean and boosted us and told us to go do it, but because Jesus has promised to never leave us and to do his work in us. The promise of the Spirit is a promise of God's presence on the inside. The prophets take that up and, and, and promise that now God's law will be written on our heart. Well, we'll obey because we want to, because it makes us happy to obey, because we love God, not because we're afraid of Him. What it means, friends, is that you are not alone in your battle against sin. Jesus came to be with you in it to give you his power to fight it. 
and even by his spirit to fight your battle right alongside of you. You're not alone. You're not stuck. You're not powerless and you have no reason to give up. Because Jesus has made our enemies his enemies. I want to read you a section from one of my favorite books of all time. I have to resist trying to quote this book every Sunday. I could. This is a book by a Puritan pastor named Richard Sibbs. It's called The Bruised Reed. It's just one amazing section in this book where he's talking about the beauty of a king who fights for us, who wins our victories for us, who doesn't just boost us with a little energy and then turn us loose to do our own thing, but actually stays with us forever. Here's what Sib says about this king. The language is a little outdated, but I think you'll get the point. The victory lieth not upon us, but upon Christ, who hath taken it upon him as to conquer for us, so to conquer in us. If it, or the, the victory, lay upon us, we might justly fear. But Christ will maintain his own government in us and take our part against our corruptions. They are his enemies as well as ours. Don't you love that line? What is it in your life that you wish you could be free of? What is it that keeps holding you back? You wake up under its cloud. Can you maybe not imagine living life without anxiety? Without lust? Without crippling fear of what other people think? You don't need somebody to tell you those things are not good. You know they're not good because you hate them. They're like bricks. Tied around your neck, holding you down, holding you back. You want to be free, don't you? Maybe you can't imagine being free. Judges has shown you that you can't. Unless you have a king who doesn't just get rid of what's outside of you, but transforms what's inside of you. A king who will make your enemies his enemies. And so Sibs writes, let us not look so much who are our enemies. Don't focus on them as who is our judge and captain. Nor what they threaten, but what he promises. We have more for us than against us. And what coward would not fight when he is sure of victory? Jesus came to set us free. And last but not least, Jesus came to help us remember. All the, all the mess in Judges started for them when they forgot God's goodness in the past. And began to doubt God's goodness in the present. The very beginning of Judges, where everything starts to fall apart, things are great. God has just given them everything he'd promised that he would. He'd freed them from bondage in Egypt. He'd carried them across the wilderness. He'd fed them from 
food that just fell from the sky. He brought water out of rocks where there was none. He'd given them victories over armies far more powerful than theirs. They defeated a fortified city just by walking around it a few times and blowing a few trumpets. And under Joshua's leadership in the land, they'd already begun to drive out all those who were God's enemies. Everything was going great. Until, Judges chapter 2 told us, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There arose a generation after them who didn't know the Lord, who had not seen for themselves the work that he'd done for Israel. When we're not sure we can trust what God gives us, we will scramble every time. We will scramble for whatever we can take for ourselves. When we're not sure we can trust God's goodness and embrace what He gives and be content with what He doesn't, we will always scramble for whatever we can take for ourselves. We'll be controlling like Gideon was. We'll be anxious or fearful like Barak was. We'll be impulsive like Jephthah was. We'll be slaves to the desires of the present. Whatever we might happen to want in the moment like Samson was. We're power hungry and abusive like everybody was by the end of Judges. If we can't trust what God gives us, we will take matters into our own hands. And that's not good for us. And that's not good for the people who live around us. So what is it going to take for us to believe that God is good? How can we bank on it rather than constantly evaluating it? Never really sure. Wondering about better options on the other side of the fence. That was Israel's problem and judges, that's our problem today. But friends, Jesus came to help us remember. To help us remember what Israel always forgot. Jesus came to help us remember by offering us the greatest proof possible. That whatever else God may be doing in our lives, He is loving us towards glory. I want to read from John chapter 3. Verse 16 and 17. How can I know that God can be trusted with my life? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's how you know. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Don't miss the shocking beauty of this statement, friends. The shocking beauty of Christmas. There's no sentimentality here. There is liberating power. Don't miss the beauty. What John 3 has just told us is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son the thing most precious to him, the thing most irreplaceable. Think of who it is he sent his son to. Think of how Israel 
always related to him. One of the things we've said over and over in Judges in our study is that one of the reasons the book is still here is that we need relationship history with God. We need to know what we can expect from God based on how God has related to his people in the past. We need to know if you want to have a relationship with him, what kind of things will he expect of you? What can you look for from him? And the coming of Jesus to us on the backside of all that we've seen in Judges offers us the most powerful piece, the most clarifying and helpful piece of relationship history imaginable. What we've seen is that God's relationship was with people who were always doubting him. Freedom from Egypt wasn't enough. Fed them from heaven wasn't enough. Cleared out their enemies in front of them without even needing their help wasn't enough. Every time he blesses them, they doubt him. Every time they doubt him, he gives them more proof. They doubt him, he sends them Ehud. They doubt him again, he sends them Deborah. They doubt him again, he sends them Gideon. They doubt him again, then it's Jephthah and Samson and all down the line. How does God respond to people who aren't true to him? That's what you need to know. Because you and I are just like Israel. He gives me breath to breathe in the morning and I complain about the weather. He gives me a wonderful home surrounded by friends in a city that I love and I'm worried about the expenses that my house heaps onto my back. He gives us beautiful children. I complain about the challenges of parenting them. If you, as a forgetful person, prone to complaining, want to have a relationship with God, you need to know what kind of God you're getting, in, you're, you're getting into. And what Judges has shown us with John 3 as the coda is that what you can expect from this God is love. Jesus reminds us of his love more clearly than anything else could. He responds to failure and to doubt, to infidelity with patience and grace. He's attentive to those who are neglectful of him. He is relentlessly committed to providing for all you depend on him. What can you expect from this God? This is a God who always keeps his promises. Who so loved a forgetful world that he gave for them his only son. The message of Christmas is that in Christ we see God's love. Brilliant. Bright beautiful. In Christ, we have the only proof we need of how God feels towards those who depend on him. In Christ, God has given us the king that we need. Father, we are grateful to you. Not as grateful as we should be, but grateful to you. That you've chosen to love us even though we are unworthy of your love. 
And our prayer to you through our Christmas celebrations and through our community's life together is that you would help us to live now in the light of what you've given. Help us to remember that you're trustworthy because you've proven that. That you would protect us from the forgetfulness of Israel by the beautiful testimony of your love that we receive in Jesus. Help us to see our lives through him. Everything depends on him. Thank you for Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. We're going to continue to sing now, to sing some of the best celebrations of